big thank you to all of our supporters in the year 2021, a weird year to be sure, from supporting our events to our political education and all of our podcasts to supporting our agricultural efforts, as well as providing emergency shelter to folks and activist and artistic shelter to those engaged in those causes. If you like this content, please support us at patreon.com slash solidarity house. That's patreon.com slash solidarity house. We have Chessie Lee from the Riverton Peace Mission. And how are you doing? Uh, happy, happy new year, Chessie. Well, thank you. I'm doing great. And um, yeah, pleased to be here. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. What you guys have been doing, uh, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say you guys, you all have been doing <laughs> a lot of stuff uh, over the last year. And I was, I earlier had said to a colleague, uh, well, I hope that 2022 is weird in a good way because 2021 has <laughs> been such a, a weird and kind of challenging year. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the, some of the highlights of what's been going on there over the last year? Yeah, well, um, the Riverton Peace Mission, um, you know, is based in in Riverton, Wyoming, where we are uh, specifically surrounded by the Wind River Indian Reservation. Uh, in fact, it it legally probably should be um, considered a part of the reservation, but because of um, Act of Congress and people settling here and incorporating a town and it's been treated as separate. Uh, but like other border towns across the country, um, it's, there's a lot of violence um, and hostility with, uh, with the uh, people who live on the Rin River Indian Reservation and indigenous people. Um, there's really not an acknowledgement uh, by settlers uh, that this is uh, that this is stolen land, um, and that uh, uh, and that just how badly I think a lot of people just are not aware of how badly Native Americans get treated uh, here, uh, and and like I say, I think it happens in border other border towns as well. So you know we're here to address. Uh, uh, the violence uh, and a lot of it is just raising awareness uh, and to educate people. Our big focus has been uh, the campaign uh, that's been called uh, Justice for Andy. Um, it's a separate committee, but we've been supporting that uh, by through education. We had what was called a People's Theater Inquest uh, in August and uh, that was held at Central Wyoming College, although we were asked at the last minute to move it from the college uh, because uh, the mayor uh, specifically asked for that, uh, just not wanting, not wanting that openness. The killing happened. It was by a, a police officer, Riverton police officer, who um, responded to a call at the uh, Riverton Walmart, that someone was there who was intoxicated. Uh, turned out it was somebody he, he knew, had had prior contact with I, because he was uncooperative and um, he somehow had possession of a knife. Uh, the officer shot him in the head at close range while holding him by the wrist. Uh, 
So a gun in one hand and the other hand on his wrist. Uh, and um, there's the uh, uh, county attorney uh, very quickly determined that it, the act was in self-defense without a, a jury uh, or just on his own decided that. And, and also uh, refused to cooperate uh, with the county coroner who wanted an inquest. So that's why we had this People's Theater inquest, because they had refused to have an, an actual inquest. And we still like to see an actual inquest. So we, you know, because the story always got out there, it was, uh, you know, in self-defense. And uh, so that's a lot of people were dismissing it. Uh, as a result, we, we ran um, a couple of uh, full page ads uh, to try to educate uh, the other side of this story. Uh, and we supported the second anniversary memorial walk where three of the uh, business council members of the Northern Arapahoe tribe uh, spoke and uh, raised their concerns. Um, and it's not just uh, about Andy Antelope, although you know that's that's bad enough, but it's it's unfortunately it's, it seems to be typical of of um, that of that attitude. You know, uh, one a bystander uh, was heard to say uh, afterwards. After, after the shooting at Walmart, a lot of people gathered around and Walmart remained open. And so, um, which was contrary to what family requested. Um, and what this person was heard to say when somebody said, well, what, what happened? And he said, oh, just another drunken uh, Indian got killed. And so um, that, unfortunately, that kind of comment reflects um, uh, a major attitude, I think, in this community. Uh, so responding to that. Uh, and we then found out from, from the coroner's report that was not open to the public, but was to family members and the, and the son, Antelope, uh, Anderson Antelope Jr., uh, made that report available to the public uh, that Andy Antelope had been uh, raped just a few days before he was killed. And the officer who shot him had been one of the uh, officers who responded to uh, the request by the hospital to, for him to be interviewed and referred to the sheriff. That report, just like the inquest, that report has not, they've not uh, allowed that to be made public. And um, so it, it just seems to be cover up after cover up. And um, it's, just very concerning. Do you feel like that consumes a lot of the work of the center? Um, do people also know about kind of some of the other things that the center does kind of proactively to help people in the community come together? And do you want to talk about any of that? Uh, certainly. I mean, we are supporting uh, especially young people who are uh, interested in promoting justice issues, uh, one way we did that was to support uh, a young man who uh, was called a water protector, uh, Big Wind, uh, and he uh, is in northern Minnesota opposing line three of the uh, Enbridge pipeline. So we want to support and raise up people like that because so often they get put down uh, and uh, want to encourage young people to uh, to be able to speak up one of the things that and i've i've learned this too is how afraid 
um, indigenous people who are here to to speak up because of a fear of uh, retribution. And you know, I've told people people have told me uh, that they uh, they support what we're doing, but they cannot publicly acknowledge that because of uh, fear of even losing their job, as one one person put it. So it's um, it's it's very sad. So. But that is one. The other thing that we uh, have got some funds to be able to begin uh, to hire a, a person who will be an indigenous community organizer. And um, so to bring together indigenous people to talk about these issues in, in a safe, safe way. Um, and we do have we have monthly uh, Wind River Justice Pod meetings where uh, anyone, uh, we have people from even out of state, but people throughout Wyoming who uh, listen, uh, participate in those meetings and make them educational. Um, so we've had like one was about the boarding school uh, and, and the impact that had specifically on the people who live on the Wind River Indian Reservation. The other uh, thing that we're looking at uh, to do more of, and we're, we are engaging more white people uh, to be uh, aspiring allies. And uh, we, that's a program I'd really like to see expanded because I know a lot of people say, well, what can I do? And certainly sending money, <laughs> it helps. But a, a lot of it too needs to be that we need people to be better educated uh, about what the concerns are and then to, uh, to activate them and to get people uh, to just really practice, just being aware of um, how um, colonialism is is still uh, impacted uh, in our community. We certainly want to continue uh, the justice for Andy. Uh, we want to get a copy of that investigation that um, was made uh, into his being raped and a, a rape kit was done uh, so we know uh, that there should be evidence there. Uh, so we will pursue getting um, that information out and some other just uh, uh, issues. We have a petition uh, we have uh, been promoting. Uh, people can sign it. Uh, and uh, that's to, uh, to ask for uh, a real inquest uh, and uh, to to look at the, what what reforms could be done. Uh, I mean, it really concerns me that just even minor things like having uh, body cameras, uh, vehicle cameras, has been uh, just outright rejected as a, uh, a by the police when that really could be to their own advantage, uh, uh, especially when they say, "Well, no, we we had to," you know. Well, <laughs> don't be afraid to have. The, the video available, getting people uh, to talk, making sure that there's um, safe safe spaces to talk uh, in, and then um, one of like I mentioned before, we we are looking more and more at how we can educate because I think it will start with educating uh, aspiring allies to get involved and to learn more. So I think you know the first step is is opening the door and saying, yes, I want to learn. You know, I may not know everything. We know that uh, doing all of this um, costs a little bit of money. Um, how can people support the Riverton Peace Mission? 
Well, financially, you can support it by going to our website, which is very simple. It's just rivertonpeacemission.org, and there's a, a donate button there. So people can um, can learn more about us and to uh, make donations. And also, uh, we appreciate uh, checks that can be mailed to Post Office Box 255, uh, Riverton, uh, 82501. So those are uh, ways to give financially. Um, if people, there's also, they can contact us through the website uh, if they would like to get uh, involved. And, while the website now doesn't list any specific uh, events coming up, uh, we will be doing that as, as those opportunities arise. Obviously, just by getting involved in learning, and I imagine by sharing uh, on social media and on other in other ways, word of mouth, uh, even the activities and and the the vision of of the mission. Uh, yes, and we we do have a Facebook page and. Um, so people can um, can go there and like it, and and uh, that way be notified when when activities come up. And also, it it has a link to our to our website to be able to to donate. Well, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on short notice, and also for just all of the amazing work uh, that you and the mission are doing. Uh, and just you know, so that you know that, and and I'm sure that you do. Uh, that folks in all folks all over Wyoming um, are very very happy and excited uh, about the mission and want to support it. Well, thank you. So, what happened to Nina's car? Uh, Sean and John are still out there. She's unstuck right now. They're trying to clear the. Uh, path of the drift by the mailbox. Well, if I knew that she was trying to come home, I would have pulled her all the way in. Right. Uh, but she's trying to leave. communicated to you well. Um, sorry. I just heard we, that she was stuck. <laughs> so I assumed she was trying to get out of here. I think if we were to try and get a used snowblade that we could say put on the front of Derek's vehicle. That That's might a be great there. idea. That'd be awesome if we could find a cheap right. one of them. Let's see how uh, much that is. Are you Googling it now? I'm Googling used, yeah. Yeah. Used snowblade. I had a great discussion yesterday with Chessie Lee, who is the director of the Riverton Peace Mission, which is an anti-colonialist uh, community center adjacent to the Wind River Reservation. So that was great. And we talked about kind of a bunch of the stuff that, that they've been doing um, over the uh, past uh, year, including a lot of stuff around the police killing of Andy Antelope. And there's a bunch of stuff to you that people can read about it, but they did a, a people's inquest, uh, the Riverton Peace Mission did um, over the summer, and because the state and the, the county uh, won't do an inquest in the police killing. And so they did one of their own. There's been a bunch of other stuff coming around. They've done a bunch of other cool things and you can donate to them at rivertonpeacemission.org. If you go to rivertonpeacemission.org, there's a donate button and you can do that. They also have an address if people want to send checks. And I just, 
can't imagine a more important cause in Wyoming in the very heart of oppression and settler colonialism and violence and state violence and colonialist violence and racism uh, for that Riverton Peace Mission to be there is uh, a real plus for both indigenous community members and also their white and other allies who want to work with them. Uh, so it's a great, it's a great cause, folks. Please donate to the Riverton Peace Mission. This is Solidarity House, Solidarity Wyoming. Uh, we've got Antifa. Yeah, nobody can fucking see you raise your cup. Oh, sorry. All right? This is a <laughs> podcast. Okay, whatever. Uh, we've got Derek. Can they see Derek. this? We've got, <laughs> we've got Derek with us. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and we have Damien with us. Hey, everyone. And I'm Matt, of course. And we're talking about some of the Wyoming's an interesting place and we're talking about some of the interesting stories that have come out politically in the year 2021 and particularly stories that sort of highlight how we are a capitalist hellhole and a basically a giant company town that uh, uh, working for a dying economy. I think it's fitting that the very first article that I found was this article from, or it's it's actually a, an op-ed from Carrie Drake at Wyofile based on news reports that have already come out, that had already come out. Uh, and this article was from December 28th, and it describes Wyoming as this really corrupt tax haven where Russian oligarchs and people with mob ties and money launderers, just a a rogues gallery of foreign and domestic crooks uh, can uh, save their store their money and store their and register their businesses in Wyoming without any kind of fear of scrutiny. Uh, how did how did this uh, did this surprise anybody to to read this? No, was not very really. surprised. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> By how, um, I guess, how worldwide of a um, incidence it is. Like I had heard about, you know, domestic billionaires. You got your Kanye Wests coming over here, setting up shop with their ranches and um, I guess bunkers full of gold bullion. But wow, like the Damn. extent of it really surprised me. Um, there's one paragraph that mentions a Dominican Republic dictator. Are they talking about Trujillo? The Trujillo family's got assets yes. in Wyoming? Yes, they are. He's dead, uh, but his family and the, his chief of staff have uh, massive holdings and trusts. Of course, we can't say how much it is because Wyoming law doesn't require any sort of reporting. So we don't know for sure. That's why. That's the whole point. Yeah, exactly. I would like to push back on the idea just a little bit that this should be a surprise. I'm not like a, trying to call you out on anything, Derek. Wyoming has two airports capable of handling large like commercial jets, like international airports, Saratoga and Jackson Hole. Because super wealthy people love to go to Saratoga and golf. And they love to go to Jackson Hole for, you know, 
Yellowstone, Tetons, and apparently to hide their money. And so uh, a, a, a small state like Wyoming with 600,000 uh, residents having two airports that it can accommodate, that kind of stuff would tell you something is going on. Uh, you know, why are rich people coming here in droves? And now we know why. But then again, like you have to consider like with Wyoming being the least populated state, and I would imagine, you know, having a bunch of families already who already struggle um, in terms of land use, um, ownership, um, and finances. It's not very hard for rich people to take advantage of one of the least cared about states in the United States. Yeah, that's such a good point. And also because it, to me, also represents the transition from Wyoming as the center of mineral and oil and gas capitalism to Wyoming as the center of financial capitalism. And you even see this with, we're not talking about any stories on this, uh, uh, about this today, but obviously Wyoming, the, the, the sort of crypto libertarians are trying to create a cryptocurrency state where similar lack of regulations and lack of oversight will allow the development of all kinds of speculative and unstable crypto schemes. And there's no, it's, it's, but it's the same paradigm. It's the same paradigm of a few people, not only owning a lot of wealth, but also being able to dodge regulations on that wealth, as well as commit transactions that have these incredible negative externalities all over the world, but because they park their business here or park their accounts here, they don't, none of that gets scrutinized. Antifa, is Maxwell literally laying on your computer? No, he's laying in a box. Okay. <laughs> a keyboard that has a heating pad in it because cats like boxes. How about this for a transition? If we ta start talking about this weirdo Frank Ethorn and the ties that the Wyoming Republican Party hierarchy has to organizations like Oath Keepers and Three Percenters and all of these fascist organizations. Wyoming uh, wants to be a libertarian state economically. And in order to create a sort of ideological wall that allows for that, they have to crush any kind of opposition to uh, capitalism and, and resistance to the abuses of libertarian capitalism. And in order to do that, they have to be, they also have to be fascists. They simultaneously have to be libertarians and fascists. And to me, that's what is sort of the underlying kind of ideological truth underneath the story about Frank Ethorn and these other extremely strange characters who both run the Republican Party and are uh, members of these, these militia, uh, these far-right militia groups. Eathorn stinks like a sack full of assholes. Yep. Um, and it's disturbing, not surprising. Label me shocked, not surprised. Uh, and to read his statement about when he was there at the insurrection on January 6th is vomit-inducing. And if you want to go even further down the creepy rabbit hole, read the comments 
off the multiple off the wild file and the other uh, local Wyoming news sources. Your opposition to fascism seems remarkably fascistic. Mm-hmm. I am very clever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got me. I think for most people, they would usually be disturbed upon being given this information, especially about Erdogan. But at the same time, it's not surprising to me. And maybe that's just because I've already had some sort of experience with fascists, both online, in person, and government-wise. But, like, it doesn't surprise me that, like, we hear that he was at the January 6th riots. It doesn't surprise me that he tried to defend Donald Trump on his statement, saying that he was trying to be peaceful. It doesn't surprise me that he's an oath keeper, if anything. If anything, it just reinstates what we honestly believe about these politicians. Something I thought was funny from the Wyofile article um, that interviewed Boone Tidwell, um, a former Wyoming resident, or a Wyoming resident who's a former oath keeper, um, where he said he, where he was talking about how they try to organize in the Wyoming chapter. And he said, it's difficult to organize in a state where members are all geographically so far apart. And that struck me as like, oh, isn't that a quaint little universal truth? Like mm. they have the same trouble that we do. But let's also keep in mind that fascists are generally not very good at doing what they want to do. They're uh, not smart. They're not smart. They they inevitably fail and they don't last very long because they make policies and life that are so intolerable that eventually everybody's just like, fuck you. One of the most annoying things that we've all been hearing for the past year, at least annoying to me, is how often in the media we'll hear the phrases like in referring to the January 6th insurrection, talking about um, this destruction and irreverence towards our sacred, hollowed halls of democracy um and i guess yeah if we're talking about coups um nobody knows coups better than the united states but that's because the united states is the main worldwide um perpetrator or supporter of coups around the world and when something with bipartisan in that area comes here we're not complacent as at all compared to the the real shit that's going on around the world. One other thing I wanted to say just about this story was uh, that, of course, it mentions our friend, the good Dr. Taylor Haynes. Uh, He's not really our friend. I don't think he knows us, Uh, but he is this uh, 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 kind of uh, ever-present political force in Wyoming who ran for governor in the last cycle. And uh, it was learned that he didn't live in Wyoming. um, And then he uh, lived at, at an address in Wyoming that purportedly uh, belonged to a business and was not actually a residential property and just all kinds of, of shenanigans. And it doesn't surprise me at all that he is in Oath Keepers because a lot of these fascist outfits are themselves kind of shelters for, or, or um, you know, kind of screens for corrupt politicians as well. Uh, I wanted to say that um, the article that we were getting most of our, inf- of our information on about uh, this this weirdo, Frank Ethorn and uh, the good Dr. Taylor Haynes um, is an article by P- Cooper McKim and Andrew Graham is also uh, contributed to the article. 
um, great uh, journalists uh, who have done a lot for uh, independent press in Wyoming. Um, and the last line of the article uh, is that of the Wyoming residents listed as Oath Keepers members, nine are identified as veterans and five are affiliated with law enforcement. No surprise. Cops are the kinds of people to literally form gangs if you want to look up the LASD um, police gangs in California. Um, considering that half of them literally want to initiate members by having them kill a certain amount of people um, and having like certain horrible rituals that like get people in protect them, make sure that if they do something bad on the job, they never get prosecuted. And it didn't happen here in Wyoming, but like cops have such a huge ego. And I think that's why they go into like these different services, whether that be through the government, like the military, or whether they join gangs like the LASD gangs. Cause I remember when I was younger, um, this cop who went on to be an SRO at my high school, literally almost rammed his car into the back of my family's car. And once we pulled over and we started discussing, of course, like my family was like, why did you drive like that? That's reckless. Like you could have killed my kids. And literally just because my like parents were criticizing him, they called five more police cars and had guns aimed at him. Um, and so for things like that to happen, whether it be where I'm from, whether it be from Wyoming, whether it be from these cops who are known for these gangs and these groups, like, I don't know. <laughs> As I said, it's not surprising, but definitely happens. You can't deny it by this point. Good segue also into talking about the ongoing struggles of police accountability. Uh, of course, our interview with Chessie Lee, that's also on this, that's also going to be on this episode, talks about the struggles over finding accountability in the murder of Andy Antelope back in 2019. Of course, here in Laramie, uh, ex-sheriff's deputy Derek Colling murdered Robbie Ramirez in 2018 and was never indicted. It was th the third time that Colling had murdered someone uh, as a cop, uh, had also been fired from Vegas uh, for beating the shit out of someone trying to film him. Um, and that was before he came to, to Laramie. Uh, Dave O'Malley was the sheriff who hired him. Dave O'Malley's kind of a piece of shit. Uh, and uh, he, uh, you know, through, throughout it all, um, ignored all of the warning signs. Uh, and finally, this year, under the new sheriff, of uh, Aaron Applehans, uh, calling resigned. And he clearly resigned because he did not want a termination on his record in case he wanted to be a cop somewhere else. The LPD won't have him. They actually fired him from like a, a special force that he was on for them. Uh, so if somebody does have him, he doesn't want in the future to preclude that option by having a termination on his record. If only his conduct record could go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but un but you know, unfortunately, cops uh, are often protected by uh, state and local laws that forbid the sharing of that information from jurisdiction 
to jurisdiction. The I guess the last thing I'll say about Colling is that he uh, is now doing, and he was doing this before. He was moonlighting as this before while he was a cop, but he is doing the the one thing that might be even more offensive than being a cop uh, or being a, a murderous, brutal cop. Um, and that is that he's he's a landlord and real estate agent. So he's just touching on all the bases, huh? Yeah, he, yeah, he, um, all nine circles. It's like, how can I achieve like the master stone of all the <laughs> yes. levels of fascism? Cops and landlords alike have a victim complex. I wanted to talk about a couple of cool things or sort of more encouraging things. And one of them was just this successful pushback I think successful pushback by the librarians and other residents in Gillette, up in Gillette, uh, which we've we've devoted some episodes to goings on in Gillette, um, that they kind of pushed back against the 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 this desire to censor um, and even well I would I would headline this. Gillette fascists learned they couldn't jail librarians or even ban books. Well, because I was surprised to learn said information because I, when the news first came out that like people were wanting to arrest the librarians for book indecency, I was like, how? There's, there, there can't be a law against this. And apparently there was, you know, a law that was never repealed for book indecency. Like that obscenity. if someone, like an obscene. Yeah, that if someone yeah. said that it was obscene and that it was not okay for the general public, that it, you could technically either get rid of the building or you could arrest the person who put said book there. The question in my mind is, well, the threshold question, I think in the, in the, in the legal threshold question is whether uh, shelving books that contain information about sexuality violates these obscenity laws and the prosecutor reluctantly, and this is the best part about this, by which I mean the worst part about this, is that the prosecutor reluctantly and regretfully concluded that a that pushing a prosecution forward on those grounds would not succeed, would not ultimately succeed. We know that prosecutors have discretion uh, about that, and this guy read the law and you know said something to the media along the lines of, Wow, if I, you know, if I could throw them in jail, I would. Books that help children understand, like, and I'm talking to children, like, from the ages of, like, 8 to 10, maybe 8 to 12. It literally helps them identify scenarios and situations in which something sexual is going on. And it has been used before as a way to prevent, you know, assault against kids. And so... Honestly, from my viewpoint with that kind of argument, I think that's not only, you know, preventing LGBT children or possible LGBT children from learning about themselves or possibly learning about their friends, but it also prevents them from getting the knowledge that could save them one day if they ever got into a bad scenario where someone was trying to harm them. Exactly, exactly. And I hate to conclude or speculate that that that's the point, but I think for some folks who are in favor of censorship and in favor of throwing librarians in jail or worse, uh, that is the point. They don't want to be able to prevent, they don't want to empower uh, sexual minority youth to be able to uh, protect themselves and to establish their own autonomy. And I found it really heartening that the, the number of 
residents in Gillette who did speak up against this long-term intimidation campaign that was taking place against the library. Let's not forget that the books that the Nazis are famous for burning were about sexological research and communism. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I wanted to point out um, in the NBC News article we were reading um, about this, it says, the couple still believe it's wrong to use public money to keep such books in the library. And my thought about that is like, have you ever been to a small town library in Wyoming or Utah or Idaho and see how much of that is dedicated to like Rush Limbaugh shit? Um, our public, like I'm pretty fumed that public money goes to libraries like that in the yeah, first place right, as well. Right. Like I was going to make the comment earlier about how like a lot of these people who like don't like the books will be like, I'm not a fascist, so don't call me a fascist. But then some of them have actually suggested like a book burning where they would just check out books and then burn them and never return them. You know, one of the stories that we included was the story that we actually have an episode up uh, from November 12th, which is, which we called the not so special session or Wyoming GOP wins participation trophy. And that's this special legislative session that happened in the late fall uh, where they tried to pass like 20 different anti-vax, anti-mask mandate, uh, all kinds of laws. And they, the only, they only ended up passing one thing, which, is, which was to support a lawsuit that was going to happen anyway. Uh, and Jason and I talked about this episode, uh, on the episode. We'll link it in the notes because uh, it's a, a great earlier episode that we did about this. But again, it speaks to this uh, that, yes, there's a lot of power that the far right has in the state and they have power to do a lot of violence and they have power to do a lot of, of localized and kind of micro political and, and other interpersonal violence and things like that. Uh, but they still can't seem to govern. Um, because that's not something that fascists can ever really competently do. And so they ended up in this legislative session, they ended up not being able to pass anything because they didn't know how to get around the various checks and balances that exist to prevent those sorts of things. And so it was at best, I don't know, kind of a, a draw and kind of a shit show or clown show in the end. <sighs> don't get me started. Um, you know, and then you We've spent the entire episode getting you started. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, but these and some businesses like those that receive Medicaid and Medicare funding, which the federal government absolutely has the right to attach strings to because that's voluntarily accepted money. You don't have to take Medicaid funds or Medicare funds. States love to, but they don't have to take it. They can put those kind of requirements on it and you're going to lose and you're going to spend all this money. And at the same time, we still have to have a soup kitchen in Laramie, a city of 30,000 people where, you know, the only reason we don't have a homeless crisis is because it's well covered and well hidden. It's gross that they can spend that money to do this to something that's not going to be fruitful, that's going to be a complete waste of, uh, of resources. And at the same time, they just don't care about poor people and they're also going to let rich people just walk all over us and not pay any taxes thank you for joining us damien going once yeah. going twice thanks everybody um and we will 
post this episode tomorrow. See you later. Nice. See ya.